If you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 19, verse 28 through 30, before we get to Easter Sunday morning, we've got to look at some stuff that happened this week in history. You know, there are some things, John chapter 19, verse 28 through 30, you know, there are some things that we dread. Maybe some of you, when you get up in the morning, you dread going to work. You're like, ah, oh, no, another day. Maybe there's some conversations that you know that you need to have, and you would rather not. You know that this conversation is coming, but you would rather not have it. But you know that someday you're going to have to have that conversation. Perhaps there's some things that you have to do, and you say, boy, I would rather, ah, oh. I know it's coming, I know I'm going to have to do it, I know I'm going to have to face it, but just to be honest, inside my stomach aches when I think about it. I get stressed out when I think about it. There are times that even though our stomach may hurt and even though we may dread certain things, we are led to go that direction and we know that we're led that way. Jesus understood this feeling and he understood what awaited him as he faced the cross, he prayed twice in the garden, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass. If it's possible, let this cup pass. But he concluded with, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, then your will be done. Now we're going to pick up on as Jesus is hanging on the cross in John 19 verse 28 through 30. And he says, later knowing that all was now complete and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked the sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, we know that those words of Jesus, I thirst, spoke of his humanity. What an irony it is that the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who created the rivers and the streams, the one who causes water to well up from the earth and springs was thirsty Surely those who stood by remembered that he was the one who gave the invitation. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. He was the one who talked to the Samaritan woman at the well. And he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Later on, he says that everyone who drinks this water, meaning the water from Jacob's well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, we know this, that Jesus had already endured untold sufferings. The agony of the garden... You talk about stress. Some of you, you know, some of you are under at times. 
You ever have stress weighing in upon you and you just feel like I can't take another thing? This weight, the agony of the garden where Jesus, he agonized there and he sweat as it were great drops of blood. Then there was his arrest, the trial, the flogging, being forced to carry the cross till Golgotha. He was mocked, he was punched, he was spit upon, nails were driven through his hands and feet, and a crown of thorns was placed into his scalp. For three hours, darkness covered the face of the earth. Many suggested it was during this time that Jesus carried the weight of the sin of the world upon himself. For the first and only time throughout all of history, he experienced the utter agony and helplessness of being separated from the Father. Now, I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where I felt that weight of sin weighing upon me. Have you ever been in a circumstance where you just felt sin, you felt the darkness, you felt the heaviness of maybe the circumstances or of your actions or the consequences of what you've done? You felt separated from God, you felt that feeling of hopelessness. Well, friend, Jesus experienced that for all of us. He experienced that for all of us. Before that time, he had never broken intimacy with the Father. Before that time, he was always in fellowship with the Father. Before that time, there was never anything that separated him from the Father. Nothing. Nothing had ever come between the two of them. And he experienced this separation from the Father, this suffering on the cross, all in our stead. So that those who put their faith in him would never need to suffer in this manner. The scripture speaks of hell as being a place of eternal torment. Hell is a place of regret. Hell is a place of torture. Hell is a place of every bit of hope is gone from hell. There is absolutely no hope at all in hell. But it's also a place of great thirst. When Lazarus and the rich man died, the rich man asked Abraham to send Lazarus with a drop of water on the tip of his finger to touch his tongue and quench his thirst because he was in torment. Surely Jesus experienced pure torment and pure agony upon the cross. Now, the scripture tells us this, that Jesus, in the midst of all of this, knowing that all was now completed, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. In order to fulfill every single prophecy that was spoken of his life, Jesus uttered those words. Those words that, you know, they have the seven sayings of the cross, and that fifth saying is the only word that speaks of Jesus' physical suffering. That's the only one that speaks of his physical suffering, of what he went through. In Psalms 22, verse 15, it says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. In Psalm 69, verse 20, it says, Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. 
I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. The Gospel of Mark tells us earlier that Jesus refused a drug drink that would deaden his pain. They would give them a drink and there was stuff mixed in it that would cause them to hallucinate. When Jesus saw what it was, he would not drink it. He refused that drink. Why? Because he was in his right mind. He was in a state of capacity in which he experienced every single pain and every single injustice and every single wrong and every single curse that was spoken. He heard them as he hung upon the cross. He was fully alert. Why would he do that? Friend, for the joy that was set before him. The writers of Hebrews says this. Why did Jesus not deaden the pain? For women who have babies and like, I want to do this natural. I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend you, but I just think, man, you're just absolutely crazy. Do it natural. For me, I would say, give me something for the pain. Break out that old epidural. Do whatever you got to do. I don't really like pain. I try to avoid pain. But Jesus did not avoid the suffering of the cross. He did not take anything or do anything that would minimize the pain and the suffering that he would bear. Why did he do that? The writers of Hebrews says this, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he despised its shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. As he hung, there's that song that sings, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. As he hung upon the cross, he endured every whip, every nail, every time they plucked his beard, every time they spit upon him, every injustice he bore. Although Jesus refused the first drink, he accepted another kind of drink. There are different thoughts to that. One is, was it this offer of a sponge filled with vinegar merely, was it merely another form of indignity? Here he hangs upon the cross, he's dying. Or is it another way for you to mock him and to despise him and to abuse him? May I suggest to you today, one commentator wrote, the drink of vinegar did not fully quench his thirst but it did enable him to utter that shout of triumph in a loud voice. When Jesus said, it is finished. When he said it's finished, what did he he mean? Did he mean I give up? I quit? You win? No. When he said it's finished, he means it is done. The work of redemption, everything that I needed to do, everything that has to be done for the redemption of mankind has been complete. They were wetting his lips. They were wetting his lips so that he could declare with a loud voice, because the word tells us that within a loud voice he said it. He said, it is finished. It's done. That's it. And the scripture says that then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. While it's true that our Lord's sufferings were now finished, there is much more included in this dramatic word. Many of the Old Testament types and prophecies that have been spoken for hundreds and hundreds of years were now fulfilled. And the once for all sacrifice for sin has now been complete. 
The word that's used is tetlasteia. Forgive me with that. It's unfamiliar to us. That's why I can't pronounce it very well. But it's used by various people in everyday life in those days. A servant would use it when reporting to his or her master. I have completed the work you've assigned me. I've completed the work that you've assigned me. When a priest examined an animal sacrifice and found it faultless, this word would apply. Jesus, of course, is a perfect lamb of God without spot or wrinkle or blemish. When an artist completed a picture or a writer completed a manuscript, he or she might reply or might say, it is finished. The death of Jesus on the cross completes the picture that God had been drawing, the artwork that God had been designing throughout time. The story has been written. Because of the cross, we understand the fulfillment of the ceremonies and the prophecies of the Old Testament. Perhaps the most meaningful meaning that was used was used by the merchants. When a debt was paid, they would stamp that word upon there. What that meant was, the debt is paid in full. When he gave himself on the cross, Jesus fully met the righteous demands of a holy law. He paid our debt in full. In the past, they would offer sacrifice of lambs, and they would shed the blood of animals. And all that would do would cover up man's sin. It would serve to cover man's sin. But the scripture says of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who covers up the sin of the world. That's not what it says. John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Plural. Not just your sins and mine, but his blood takes away the sin of all of mankind who will believe upon him. There was once a rather eccentric evangelist. And he was approached by a kind of a cocky young man. And kind of flippantly, the young man says, what must I do to be saved? It's too late, the old evangelist said, and went on about his business. It's too late, the young guy says. What do you mean? You mean it's too late for me to be saved? Isn't there anything I can do? Too late, said the evangelist. It's already been done. All you have to do is believe. The work of salvation, the work of redemption, the work of the cross, it's finished, it's complete. It's already done. What do you and I have to do? We have to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to put our faith and our hope upon him. What do we believe? We believe the testimony of the angels. I want you to turn with me very quickly to the book of Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. 
The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to, to Galilee. There they will see me. The angels testified that Jesus is not here. Another portion of the scripture says, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Just like he told you. Then in Romans chapter 10, verse 8, it says this. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. This is the word of faith that we proclaim. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your heart that you believe and justified. You are made right before God. With your heart, through your belief in Christ, and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in the Lord will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What do I got to do to be saved? What do I have to do? What does Easter mean? I'll tell you what Easter means. It means that Jesus has paid the price for your sins and mine. Let me just say this to you. I, this is, I know this is a little goofy, but, and I know that we don't play Powerball here, but if you knew the winning numbers, if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that John had the winning numbers, and John says, all you got to do, just come with me. You knew that it's legitimate. Would you still go with John? I might just walk along with him. 400 million or 500 million or whatever it was. He says, hey, you guys can sign up with me. John's got the Powerball ticket. He's the winner. You've seen the ticket. You know the numbers. The numbers have already been drawn. John says, all you got to do is just come with me and you can be like the Powerball winner. The average person would say, well, sign me up. And there again, I'm not encouraging. Don't think I'm encouraging gambling. I didn't play. I don't play. However, Christ has already won the victory. He has already defeated death, hell, and the grave. He's already accomplished the work of redemption. And did you notice that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, they will not be ashamed. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. I've done some really crazy things in my life. Pastor, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. There's been times where I've blatantly just done my own thing. I've gone my own way. Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Can I say this to you? In the midst of this process, 
as we're following Jesus. There's times where the enemy wants to make accusations against you. He wants to accuse you. He wants to beat you down. He wants to steal from you. He wants to rob you of your joy and of your peace and of your confidence. But the word of God very clearly says that anyone who puts their trust in him, you put your trust in Jesus and you will not be put to shame. As we close today, I just want to encourage you in this. He's not here. We don't have to focus on an empty tomb. He's not there. He's risen. And you know what? The work of redemption has already been accomplished. The penalty for your sins and mine has already been paid. The victory has already been won. It's just up to you and I to whether or not we're going to decide to side with Jesus and put our trust in him. Or are you going to try to still find another way to work this out and do this and accomplish this? He's already won the victory. He's already accomplished everything. He said, it is finished. What he asks for you and I is that we'll confess him as our Lord and that we will put our faith in his work. Wait a minute. Oh, I got all these temptations I face. Put your faith in him, man. I got all these trials coming against me. Put your faith in him. Anyone who puts their faith and their trust in him will never be ashamed. Father God, we thank you today that because we are in Jesus Christ, we have won the victory. We are in Christ. His victory upon the cross, his triumphing over death, hell, and the grave provide victory for us as well. And so today, Lord, we just reaffirm before everyone around us that you truly are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords. And that we, we put our faith not in what is seen, but in what is unseen. We put our faith in you. We believe beyond a shadow of a doubt the price you paid upon Calvary, the penalty that you suffered in your body, the separation you experienced from your father, the agony was for my sins. And because of that, I don't ever have to. I don't ever have to suffer that indignity, that agony of being eternally separated from the father. I don't have to suffer that punishment for my sins because you paid the price. I thank you, God, that you give us eternal life through Jesus Christ. And because you live, we can live also. Lord, I thank you that that words, when you said it's finished, it wasn't a groaning, defeated growl. I'm done, I give up. But it is finished. The work of redemption is complete. Now, Father, I pray that as we go from this place today, I pray that we would walk out of here under the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit And I pray that everyone that we come in contact with, we would be able to give them a reason, that we'd be able to give them a reason, an account of why we have such confidence, why we have such faith, why we have such assurance, because of your finished work upon Calvary. And we'll praise you and thank you for that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Amen. God bless you.